Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is Dr. Jacob Phillips. Dr. Phillips is the director of the Institute of Theology at St. Mary's University and the author of a book published by T.N.T. Clark entitled Human Subjectivity in Christ in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Theology. Dr. Phillips, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Michael Mawson posted a review of your book on Facebook, and um, I am currently working on my uh, master's thesis on Dietrich Bonhoeffer on autonomy. Um, so mm-hmm. seeing a title about human subjectivity in Christ, yeah. it just seemed like uh, something that would be really helpful for my work. And I found sure. that it really was. So um, okay. I appreciate Good. you taking the time to do this. That works. Yeah. Uh, so what, what we'll do, what we normally do is sort of like get to know you for the listeners and then yep. kind of jump into your uh, your Bonhoeffer work. Um, so we could start out by just asking, how did you discover Bonhoeffer? Well, I, I knew of Bonhoeffer from quite early on in doing theology. <clears throat> I started studying theology in my mid-20s uh, as a mature student. And um, Bonhoeffer was referred to in that theological firmament um, which I first engaged with but it was still very much the kind of John Robertson kind of caricature of letters and papers Bonhoeffer that I, I encountered then um, which was interesting but didn't really grab me at all uh, and then after I did my BA which I did at a Catholic you would say school we would say university um, <laughs> uh, after that I went to do my masters at King's College London and there was a module in that on uh, called Reason and Revelation and that was by <clears throat> it was taught by um, a guy called Professor Paul Jams who became my supervisor and he uh, bilingual with German and had really good insight and access to the Bonhoeffer Werke in German as they were being translated so he uh introduced me to various passages and texts which were quite obscure at the time in Bonhoeffer, which portrayed a completely different man to the kind of standard image of Bonhoeffer that people got in kind of mainstream English theology at the time. Um, And one of the passages we read in that module was uh, on ultimate and penultimate things from ethics. Mm -hmm. And it was that combined with a one of the only things Bonhoeffer wrote in English called the Christian understanding of God or something like that from his time in um, Union. Mm. Um, it was a combination of those two, but ultimate and penultimate things really grabbed me because as an undergraduate, the theologian I, I was most uh, taken up with really was Augustine. And um, Bonhoeffer just seemed to be sort of turning his Christianity on its head in a way but in a way that was very authentic and integral and, and getting to the heart of what Christianity is. But um, I don't want to waffle on for too long, but with, uh, with Augustine in the Confessions particularly, there's this, there's still this very strong sense of, of God or heaven being at the end of this very long, complex ladder of gradation to kind of, you know, the truth and the light and the beauty at the top and the world at the bottom. And ultimate and penultimate things just seem to turn that completely on its head Whereas this world we're existing in now is, is the closest we can get to heaven. It's the penultimate world to heaven. Um, and it was just a completely different framework that I, I, I'd never considered. And it really rang true uh, with my own kind of emerging 
sense of what I liked in Christian theology. So I wanted to do a bit more Bonhoeffer, and um, so I asked the professor if he'd be up for you know supervising the PhD, and it grew from there really. Hmm. And this this book, the Human Subjectivity in Christ, is that your dissertation? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, yeah, it seems like a really uh, a really specific topic. Um, when <laughs> yeah. I'm like, it doesn't seem like something you stumble upon. Um, how did you come up with that as your dissertation topic? Yeah, um, yeah, it's a good question, really. I mean, I, I mean, it wasn't always this specific. It became very specific as it went on. Um, I mean, you know, no doubt you'll do a PhD and your experience might be like mine and that the first year is wonderful because you're just reading everything and you've got this huge vista that you're going to bring in all of this stuff. And as you go further into it, um, the more detailed you want to get, you know, the more specific the question gets. But after I had that encounter with Bonhoeffer as a master's student, um, it was that Easter holidays, I read Discipleship in the Old English Translation. I forget the name of the translator, but the old 1950s one, The Cost of Discipleship. Mm. And uh, I mean, it just completely blew me away. I mean, really, really powerful thing to read. Um, and the bits that, that I was really fascinated by, the two or three passages in which um, what I call in the book the unreflective subjectivity of the disciple come to the fore. So the passage quite early on where Bonhoeffer says that um, the disciple turns Peter's denial of Christ onto themselves and says, I do not know the man of themselves. Mm. And also the, uh, the early, I suppose you could say, exegesis of the beginning of Matthew 6 with the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. And again, that just that just rang true, just resonated, this idea, um, which I'd never heard anyone really articulate. I'm not very well read in Christian mysticism or spirituality, really. I'd always done, you know, systematic theology and scripture. And I'd never really heard anyone articulate this sense that being in Christ or following after Christ um, is something that, that belongs to the present moment, as it were. And... Um, and, and the business of actually reflecting on it is, uh, you know, there's something precarious about that and one needs to be careful about that. I just, I really like the idea that, that there's something about Christianity and consciousness itself or subjectivity. Mm. So I just wanted to understand that further. Um, uh, and I was kind of, I was approaching discipleship in terms of conversations with theological hermeneutics and theological interpretation and things like that. So I read Diltai in connection with that in connection with early hermeneutics. But in there I found his own articulation of unreflective consciousness um, and his own articulation of, of, subject, of, of something belonging to subjectivity in the moment, which can't be reflected on. And there seemed to be a kind of parallel there. <clears throat> but I suppose the fundamental problem just emerged in relation to that, really, in that uh, when I started it, I, I would have been a lot less... Um, I suppose a bit more hardline in that I just I was willing to just completely dismiss all kind of self-reflection completely, and and have a kind of really unreflective approach to to human subjectivity in Christ or discipleship. Um, but the more I sort of read on it and, and thought about it, the more I realised how central self-reflection is to being human and and behaving responsibly. Um, so it, I kind of became really intrigued as to how 
one could uh, integrate the need for self-reflection with what seemed to be this real kernel of truth. Bonhoeffer really, he'd really struck something really significant in talking about, um, you know, discipleship as essentially unreflective as well. So I just thought, how do we, how do we connect those two? And it seemed to be something which implicitly, I don't think it's a primary concern of Bonhoeffer's by any means, but I think it's implicitly present in act and being, definitely, um, and in ethics. Um, and it's raised to a particular tension in, in discipleship where that, that unreflective side is, is really centralised. So it, um, the question of integration was um, seemed to be important for the whole corpus to an extent, although it's not something that you know, he, he directly tackles himself. Hmm. You separate these unreflective obedience mm. and the self-reflection into simplicity and wisdom. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Bonhoeffer uses these terms as... Uh, it's in ethics, right? Where he says, like, the, the only way forward is for both of simplicity and wisdom. What do you think he means by that? Is, is it just the unreflective obedience, and uh, how do they how do they work together? I, I guess I, I understand that that's probably the central problem of that you're tackling with this book. Um, yeah. How do they yeah. work together? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that that particular it's in after ten years, and then it's later. Um, re-edit that's in the, the, the current version of ethics. I think there's that discussion about simplicity of wisdom. Um, and that, I mean, it's on a kind of personal level as well, it felt that wisdom was very much about maturity, which is an ancient kind of link in the language. You know, when we talk about wisdom, we're talking about maturity as well. And, um, sorry, that's not answering your question. I was just kind of carrying on with what interested me. As, as, I, as I was kind of getting older, I suppose, I was kind of thinking becoming a bit less kind of firebrand in my Christianity. <laughs> sort of growing up a bit and thinking I do need to think about reflecting and stuff. But um, yeah, so I suppose, I mean, what it, it seemed to me, I mean, on one level you can read Bonhoeffer in a very kind of um, almost fideistic way where he's just kind of denying reason uh, to an extent that I don't think he is. And it's interesting that in ethics he does uh, affirm what he calls the clean use of uh, ratio or reason. Um, so uh, it's always tempting with Bonhoeffer just to say there's a complete contradiction here we can't resolve it Christ is the resolution um, and let's leave it at that and and, and I would my natural tendency is always to go in that kind of direction and it kind of ties in to an extent with the dominant theology that was around in the UK with radical orthodoxy and John Milbank and stuff who have a very kind of non-reason based um, approach to theology but to me, I'm glad that my supervisor kind of pushed me further on that. He wasn't satisfied with that. He kept pushing me. And I, and I, I through Diltai and various other sources, I, I thought the way to integrate them, not resolve them, you know, there's a fundamental difference there, but the way to integrate them would be to, to understand wisdom, Christian wisdom or self-reflection in Christ, to be centered on Christ in the way that one is when acting in unreflective obedience. So if one can reflect on one's own life in such a way that Christ remains in the centre, then that seems to be a way in which one can reflect it within obedience, within the movement of obedience. Hmm. And it's it, it's by breaking the, the ego-centred, the intrinsically ego-centred, or otherwise intrinsically egocentric nature of self-reflection um, <clears throat> that that it, it, it seemed to be that that to me seemed to be the path of integration really hmm. I, I had the privilege of teaching a, a class on Bonhoeffer 
at my university undergraduate class on this past Tuesday. It was great. It was, it was, it was a lot of fun, but we were reading through ethics and letters and papers. They kind of read them a little out of order. They read letters and papers and ethics and out in their reading discipleship the following week. Um, and I was kind of giving them a little bit of information about what they can expect in discipleship for those who hadn't read it yet. Um, and it was really interesting after reading your book, thinking of, um, reading Bonhoeffer's poems. Uh, so who am I, for, for instance, uh, yeah, that especially, yeah. like, how, how do you, uh, like that seems like the core of, for Bonhoeffer to have um, ethics, to write discipleship and say, you can't look at yourself and then write a, write a, a poem called, who am I? And <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, it does. And I mean, I think it's, I mean, to me, it's no coincidence that um, the kind of discourse outside of theology that gets closest to these kinds of um, uh, the kind of philosophical challenges involved in all this are often related to poetry and poetics. Um, mm. I mean, Diltai is, is explicitly writing about poetry in some of the passages where he's trying to elucidate how unreflective consciousness kind of feeds into reflective consciousness. Um, so the fact that Bonhoeffer makes that recourse to poetry is, is interesting. And it's, I mean, I think Bonhoeffer, one of the reasons Bonhoeffer is so attractive to people, I mean, there's many reasons, um, but from an academic perspective, one of the reasons why I think he has attracted so many PhD students in recent years, uh, I was listening to the Stephen Plant one, and he said there were two in the 80s. I mean, when I was doing my PhD in the UK, there were probably at least about eight of us doing PhDs on Bonhoeffer in UK universities that I knew of, and probably a few more. Yeah. Um, and why people like you, you know, appear who, who are clearly... Um, treading their own trajectory of interest in Bonhoeffer, you know, a couple of years later. I mean, I think that's partly because um, he's a very occasional writer. He writes for specific occasions with something that's obviously consuming his mind at the time. Um, but he also doesn't offer a system at all. And he says things which really do stand in very difficult relationships with each other. And, that, you know, obviously one of the dominant themes I think I go into it in the book, one of the dominant themes of one of the scholarship was uh, the coherence of the corpus and whether he went, you know, whether he actually explicitly is recanting his earlier views and stuff, which most people now would say he wasn't or he never did. But um, I think that's, that's one of the things that makes him uh, so intriguing and why so many people can feel that, that he sort of belongs to them in some way from so many different perspectives, because there are elements within his thought which are so difficult to integrate. And um and I suppose one of the things that attracted me to discipleship so much is that it hadn't really been involved very much in those conversations, and it seemed to be the most difficult thing to integrate into the rest of the theology. And when I said I wanted to do a PhD on it, I mean, a couple of people said, questioned me as to whether that was wise, because um, they felt that, you know, that the only people that would want to do a PhD on it would be um, a particular type of evangelical, hmm. um, uh, and that, you know, it might, it might, you know, not be the most sort of productive thing uh, career-wise, but I, I just ignored that now. I think they were probably, I, they probably had a point, but, you know, uh, I was just too into it to care, really, and I thought that wasn't, that tension wasn't so big in the UK. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that happens with Bonhoeffer, and I, I do want to, I mean, I'm really interested in how, um, in the in the kind of literary Bonhoeffer and how his reading of literature and poetry informs his theology and I think that's quite neglected what I haven't really looked at is his, his own attempts at the literary arts 
mm. you know, through drama, poetry, and things like that. Um, I should probably revisit them and have a look because I, I have friends who are you know German and and they think very highly of the poetry. Really, um, but I haven't I haven't had quite the same um, doesn't seem to have quite the same uh, significance in the English speaking world, and maybe it just doesn't translate that well. I'll have to have a good look at it and have a think. <laughs> That's great. Um, you mentioned uh, that you employ William Diltai. Is that the correct oh. pronunciation? Um, to help kind of resolve this uh, this tension of simplicity and wisdom. Um, well, who is William Diltai? I'm, I'm still new to all this, so uh, that was my first time reading sure. about him. Um, so okay. could you give us a little background there? Um, and then how, yeah, sure. how, does, how did he help? Yeah, so Diltai is... Um, unfortunately a very obscure figure well a relatively obscure figure who um shouldn't be so obscure because he's kind of completely amazing i really like him. i haven't really had a chance to read him since this since i sent the last draft of this to the publishers but i do want to revisit various aspects of his because I, I do really like his thought but he is basically a 19th century polymath so um a kind of academic figure a towering intellect of the sort that we we can't really produce today because intellectual disciplines are too specialized for people to have that kind of breadth of knowledge that, that people could attain in the 19th century. And um, he contributed to a huge range of different um, academic disciplines, but he's most well known for his work in textual hermeneutics. And I'd only encountered him before that you normally, in a, in a primer on Heidegger, you normally get a couple of paragraphs on Diltai because Heidegger took um, an element from Diltai and kind of corrected it and went off to, to do Heidegger. Um, but he he wrote just just a vast amount. I mean, he was the, the second chair of philosophy after Hegel at the philosophy faculty of the University of Berlin. Um, and he's, he's someone that really interests me, I think, because of his... his um, empiricism i suppose i'd say i'd call it i mean he, re he really into the english and british empiricist philosophy in a climate of german idealism he's really questioning a lot of that idealism um and drawing on this kind of empirical standpoint of british philosophy that he sees in people like hume and Locke. um and that obviously spoke to my own kind of natural sensibility being english um and also my interest in bonhoeffer related to that ultimate penultimate thing about the material world the physical world um, the concrete world as being, you know, the only primary site of God's transformative action. Mm. With Diltai, it's not, you know, it's not about God's transformative action. He's primarily a philosopher, but he understands the concrete world as uh, as as the basis for um, the study of the humanities. And he he believes that a philosophy of the concrete world should serve as the, um, the kind of el algebra or the geometry or the grammar of the humanities. And as the 19th century progresses, he feels that um, the natural sciences are just gaining ground to such a degree that a huge amount is going to be lost in terms of literature and drama and music and history and all these sciences of human self-understanding, um, which today we call the arts and humanities. So he tries to elucidate the concrete world in such a way that it will, will provide that basis. Um, but he is, he's very obscure. I never met anyone else. I have not met anyone else doing a PhD on Diltai, unfortunately. There were lots doing ones on Bonhoeffer. Uh, there's one guy who's written an amazing book on Diltai who I think is still active called Rudolf Macriel, 
somewhere in the States. And I, I did mean to write to him because there's so little published on Dilta. I was going to write and just say, look, this is kind of, it's all about Jesus, but you might like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't got around to it yet, but uh, I, would, I would strongly recommend um, engaging with Dilta. And it's, for me, the, the, um, there's just a, a sympathy of a way of approaching problems that one finds in Bonhoeffer. So I was, um, you know, I mean, I read Rustenberg, and it's very clear that Bonhoeffer was explicitly influenced by Diltai um, in the um, Tegel literature in, in prison. But all the way through, I think, um, the way in which he's responding to Kant, responding to idealism, seeking to ground things in the concrete world, there's just a kind of Diltai thought form to Bonhoeffer, um, which then made it something which it seemed appropriate to try and answer this unreflective, reflective, problem, problematic, which I had in the book. Mm. So quick backtrack, just to, uh, sure. make sure I'm, I'm tracking. Yeah. <clears throat> you mentioned his uh, critique of Kant, his critique of idealism, and his mm. uh, grounding things in the concrete world. Um, mm. Can you give me like a uh, one to two minute summary of the Kant, of the Kant and uh, idealism that he's critiquing? Yes, well, I think um, where Rustenberg and I differ is on Diltai's relationship to Kant. Hmm. So in my reading of Diltai, um, he's not really critiquing Kant as such. He agrees with everything Kant's done uh, in its original form. But he believes that Kant didn't, that Kant provided the basis for the natural sciences, but he, there's no basis for the human sciences or the humanities. So he just wants to provide a complement to what Kant's done with the critique of pure reason, I think. However, immediately after Kant, people um, ran off into the, the world of German idealism, um, claiming knowledge of the thing in itself, etc., and claiming to resolve the tensions in Kant uh, in an idealistic way. And Diltai um, hugely questions that, so he wants to stay on the kind of, I suppose what you call orthodox or classically Kantian ground. Um, but I think the main thing, the main the main way to orientate oneself towards the two different approaches, I'd say, is with Kant. One can arrive at the truth of what's happening in the experience by um, analytically breaking it down into all its different components, so intuition or, or sense experience with the understanding, and then get down to the really bare components that make experience possible. Diltai says, yes, that's great. That's exactly what one needs to do uh, as a precursor to natural science. But in the humanities, if you're reading poetry or something like that, um, there's so much that's lost by that analytic breaking down of experience. So he tries to find a way to articulate the way in which people actually live in the concrete moment. Hmm. And I think that's that's the fundamental difference. But by my reading, it's... Um, I think Diltai is trying to offer a, you know, a complementary approach to Kant for, for a slightly different purpose. And you take that uh, th that in the moment, uh, you, mm. you couple it with the flow of life statements from, mm. from Bonhoeffer. Um, how do you use those together to kind of resolve this tension of simplicity or self-reflection? Well, I think um, it's about, I suppose, the flow of life or that in the moment element from Diltai's 
uh, you know, Del Tai's a philosopher, so he's not going to get rid of self-reflection at all, or the importance of reflection, um, because then one can't even really do philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wants to, he still wants to maintain it as, as what's central to being human for this approach. Um, so he would, um, he, he would say it's in literature, it's in poetry, it's in music, it's in drama, that one um, encounters articulations which maintain, you know, the complex reality of things as they're actually undergone in life. Um, and that's something that the scientific worldview just can't capture at all. Um, so when he comes to reflect on it and, and philosophize about it, uh, he has to find a way of doing it that doesn't break it down into kind of components and principles and things like that. Um, so he comes up with these generalities, uh, which enable him to sort of classify different forms of experience. Um, and that seemed, I mean, the, the language of the flow of life seemed to be, in Bonhoeffer seemed to have the same kind of impulse behind it. He wants to maintain um, how things which would otherwise seem completely abstract and disconnected from life, you know, Christ says, follow me, and we have to follow him, and that's, you know, period could sound like a completely abstract and disconnected statement, but it's something which, you know, kind of has its meaning and its vividness and its reality in the flow of life. So um, I felt that there was a real similarity there in trying to to apply kind of overarching general, you know, requirements or conditions to life in, in such a way that they couldn't be extricated from life they just they had they just completely belonged there if that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's great um okay. it's going a lot deeper than i expected oh <laughs> no I, well it's good uh, how how i kind of think of this podcast is you know i, I created this just to to do research and a way to meet uh, sure. the authors of the books i was reading um and, yeah. and kind of gain more information um so when i as i'm reading these books and I'm thinking about the questions and kind of gearing up for this podcast. I think of who was the book in question that I'm interviewing? Who, who was it written for? Um, so yeah. like my previous episode was with Lori Branthill. And I, I know that she has done um, great doctoral work. That's obviously incredible. I interviewed her about Bonhoeffer for Armchair Theologians. So it was very, very yeah. just general for uh for new people to Bonhoeffer. But I've also interviewed, you cite him a lot in your book, I've also interviewed Michael DeYoung about um, Bonhoeffer's uh, theological formation. Um, And that was, you know, all intact and being and things like that. So I kind of just try to play along to the the beat of whatever book uh, I'm reading. So uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. Something that you really helped me um, for my thesis, I originally set out to do um, Bonhoeffer on his it just traces theological anthropology and as I was doing that I started to notice that what I found really felt like the core of Bonhoeffer was he, he's constantly talking about autonomy so I, I think that's like my the thesis of my thesis is that uh, Bonhoeffer's work is about human beings surrendering their autonomy and obedience to the will of God and so as I'm I'm doing that though something that was really helpful is that I, I have this idea of uh, autonomy as kind of you put it as the inner world and the outer world. Often I, I, I read, you know, I read ethics and I hear hearing and doing and a- actions in the world according to uh, whether or not what we want to do or 
according to what God would have us do. Um, and <laughs> it was so helpful to, to kind of build kind of an idea of what the inner world looked like and autonomy as an ability to, uh, to separate from the self, to view the self, to judge the self as an act of autonomy itself. So, um, yeah, I, I really appreciated that. It's a really good topic, a really good choice of topic. And it's, and it's definitely on the same kind of um, the nub that's driving my book as well. Mm-hmm. A kind of surrender of autonomy. Yeah, yeah. So I have, I still have a long way to go. I have about six months until it's due okay. in the final draft. So, so I, I have quite a bit. I have to do a lot more. Um, your book is also really helpful for uh, Diltai and, and and Kant. Um, I have to get really, really into the world of uh, philosophy, which I had no idea I would have to do before setting out to this. You know, I just think, oh, you know, Bonhoeffer is just a theologian. He. The more and more I read Bonhoeffer and have these interviews with Bonhoeffer scholars, the more I find out that he actually just takes a bunch of philosophy and uses them uh, theologically really often. Heidegger, yeah. Kant, uh, you know. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, it's yeah. it's been great. Um, I'm I'm learning a ton, but yeah. Well, I don't I don't really have that much more for you. I just wanted to to kind of get an, an overview of your book a little bit. Um, I guess maybe okay. if we could just sum up real quick. Uh, so the the challenge uh, is integrating simplicity and wisdom, integrating um, simplicity as non-reflexive obedience. When Jesus says, uh, I, I think you you quote uh, Bonhoeffer in two different spots where he says we must follow Jesus blindly. And then a section of ethics where he says like, we can't just walk around like we're blind or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just explicit contradiction there. Definitely. Yeah. 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 Um, <clears throat> so the way forward using the, the Diltai flow of life um, is to view the self only as being united in Christ. Am I, am I tracking? Yeah, 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 completely. Or, um, so it's kind of, um, uh, you know, accepting reflection, which is, I think I use the word dispossessed somewhere, a, um, a dispossessed form of self-reflection or, or a self-reflection which is lost to self-centered autonomy that, that normally attends to self-reflection. Um, hmm. uh, that was yeah, kind of the key to integrating it. That's great. It's great. Yeah, I mean, it's just making making me think a bunch. And you know, like every time I read a few pages of your book, I was like, "All right, I have to start writing my thesis now because it's just giving me right, more ideas." So, oh well, yeah. I mean, it's a <clears throat> it's it's a really weird thing to read now, actually, because I haven't I haven't engaged with much Bonhoeffer stuff um, for a little while. Although I'm doing a I'm doing a paper with Mike Mawson in Australia um, in a couple of weeks' time, so I will be revisiting some Bonhoeffer stuff, but. Um, yeah, I mean it's uh, it's a strange book. I mean it's kind of uh, I gave I got some complimentary copies and gave one to my dad and was just like he texted me and said I got your book. I just texted back and I said don't feel that you have to read it. <laughs> I realise it is kind of unreadable, but um, you know I mean it's but I was just I was just pushing into really kind of just trying to push as deep as I could go into it. Really. Yeah. That's why, and that's why I ended up the way it was really. I mean, it's very much a kind of PhD thesis. Mm-hmm. But it's really great for me to know that uh, you know someone out there has <clears throat> engaged with it and clearly understood it really well. So that's it's a, a great blessing for me to have a chat about it. Yeah, yeah, really enjoying it. And if you don't mind me asking, uh, what's your paper on with uh, with Michael Mawson? 
Well, well that about? stuff I mentioned about um, the kind of literary or cultural background to Bonhoeffer, I've kind of moved now into theologies of culture. Um, and I was originally pushed in this direction by Bonhoeffer, but I'm working on other theologians as well now. Um, because one of the things that struck me a bit with the philosophy with Bonhoeffer, but particularly with um, his background in in German culture, I felt that, that he, he tended sometimes to be read in a kind of cultural vacuum. Um, and when I read other texts from that were contemporary to Bonhoeffer and read more and more about the world in which Bonhoeffer was existing, um, it seemed that he was there was a lot to do with the way in which he's situated in a particular context that's often missed um, in, because people go straight to the theology and just kind of pluck these concepts out and discuss them. Um, so in relation to that, um, when I read Letters and Papers, I read it through one last time before I submitted the thesis, uh, and, I, and he makes a comment about uh, an obscure um, Austrian writer called Adelbert Stifter, novelist and says in one of the letters from Tegel um, reading Adelbert Stifter has enabled me to realise there are two forms of simplicity and I thought oh no <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was a late development in his thought but it, it was directly relevant to what I was doing so I thought um, I kind of I discuss it in a footnote in the book but then I thought next time I work on Bonifer I'm going to have a really good look at that and um and see what it could mean that these novel, these obscure novels, these Austrian novels, have a particular notion of simplicity in them. So I've been reading those, um, and I'm going to do a paper around what what Bonhoeffer may have meant by that statement, and and how it connects with this this kind of German literary tradition, where there is a there is a tradition around simplicity, um, uh, in you know, in this writer particularly around. Uh, you know, people uh, living you know kind of very simple, humble lives, really. Mm. So it's much less philosophical um, and kind of literary. So, but it should be a good colloquium if there's any listeners out there in Sydney. <laughs> uh, it's on Friday the 13th, uh, the day after the UK general election. I won't be there. Um, but there's papers on eco theology and various other things. Bonhoeffer and eco theology and other stuff. But I'm doing this one on. Uh, Stifter. That's but I'm hoping a paper, I'll be able to publish something from it um, at some point. That's December 13th. Yeah. Okay, great. Great. Yeah, I, I everyone I I talk to on here, I always tell them if you guys have if you have ever have any uh, presentations, conference papers to give out or anything like that, um, mm. this podcast is yours. <laughs> I'd like to okay, you cool. know, I I, I yeah, use I'm this a- as a as a way to hopefully I mean, it's a, I use it for selfish endeavors to connect with Bonhoeffer scholars, but also I, th- I think it's an opportunity yeah. to, uh, I, I get one Bonhoeffer scholar after another. And uh, w- what I found is that it's a, it's a really welcoming community that is all really um, interested yeah. in one several things probably um, that overlap. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been really great. Yeah, sure. It's been really good. So thanks for asking me. And um, if you're ever in London, look me up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so we'll close. We have a we have a final okay. question that we ask every um, every guest. Uh, it's a little game yeah. of desert island. All right. Sure. Uh, so the idea is that you're trapped on a desert island, and you have uh, you get to choose between one book by Bonhoeffer and one book about Bonhoeffer. It doesn't necessarily have to be a, a biography. It could be just it could be your book kind of mm. <laughs> level of detail. Um, yeah. Yeah. What two books are you taking? 
I think uh, for the book by Bonhoeffer, it would have to be discipleship. Um, I think there's definitely enough in there to keep me occupied still for quite a long time, particularly the second half about Paul's letters, um, which I've never quite got to grips with to the same degree as the opening bits about the Synoptic Gospels. Um, and it's a kind of book you can revisit over and over again. And I, I sometimes choose not to read those opening pages because whenever I read them, I end up having to change things about my life because it's so, it's so uncompromising in saying, you know, you know what Christ wants you to do and you're just the only thing stopping you from doing it is your own kind of weakness. And he's so hardcore that you end up thinking, right, I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to stop doing that. So it would be good in a desert island to, to find yourself having to give up even more. Um, and then for books about Bonhoeffer, I think I would actually go for a biography, I think. And I'd go for the Friedrich Schlingensiepen biography, uh, which captures a lot of that. It's one of the rare books, actually, that captures that um, that cultural depth to Bonhoeffer, which I think is often missed. Um, probably no doubt because it's written by um, uh, a German with a background in literature, but he makes some really fascinating connections um, between poets in Weimar Germany and, and uh, music that Bonhoeffer has listened to in concerts he went to mm. and how those were influencing his thought as well. Um, so that would definitely be a book that would keep me occupied for a while on the desert island as well. <laughs> that's great. Uh, my, uh, my thesis advisor um, says mm. that that's, that's his favorite Bonhoeffer uh, biography as well. He says that I haven't read yeah. it yet. I read quite a few few of the um, biographies, but not that one. But he says that he has a, a particular grasp of Bonhoeffer <laughs> and knowledge of the, of the context that he's working in that um, you won't really find anywhere else. Yeah, your advisor is uh, completely right in my view, and, <laughs> and I haven't heard anyone else actually mention Singer's Epen. I'll see it as anything special, but for me, it's it's the one really. Awesome, great. Well, uh, yeah. again, thank you so much just for taking the time to do this. Uh, well, I will talk to you later. Cheers, Corey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast. And thank you to Dr. Phillips for coming on. You can find the book entitled Human Subjectivity in Christ and Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Theology, published by TNT Clark, wherever books are sold. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review on your podcast app and it will help others find the show. We should be back towards the end of December with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.